We're uh, going to be in 9, 8 through all the way through chapter 12 today, and this wraps up uh, the first, uh, first major section of Isaiah. So I want to show you a clip. Um, the Bible Project, uh, they, they make uh, a lot of great videos. They have actually two parts on Isaiah, so I want to show you a, a piece of uh, part one right now. Focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment, but because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoot of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, we're going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The well, there we go. So hopefully that uh, that helps you. If you haven't been with us, that's where we've been. If, if you have been with us, that's a reminder to you. Uh, and, and the question this morning is, uh, what do you trust in or, or who do you trust in? Uh, or another angle that, that we'll read in, in chapter 12 is, uh, where is your strength? 
Uh, Florence Chadwick was an amazing distance swimmer uh, in San Diego. She won swimming competitions at a young age in the pool, but pretty quickly realized that her passion uh, was open water swimming uh, in the ocean. That's what she loved. At the age of 10, she became the youngest person to swim across the mouth of the San Diego Bay. Uh, at age 11, she entered a two and a half mile rough water race in La Jolla uh, that she absolutely loved. She'd win it 10 times over the next 18 years. Um, she competed for decades in Southern California in all these amateur swimming races, uh, but her heart was always to swim the English Channel. Uh, in 1950, on her second attempt to swim the English Channel, uh, she broke the, the then current women's record swimming the English Channel in 13 hours and 23 minutes. That sounds absolutely horrible to me. <laughs> Uh, a year later, uh, she swam the channel in the opposite direction in 16 hours and 22 minutes, becoming the first woman to swim the channel in, uh, in different directions. And, and she, over her lifetime, traveled the world swimming uh, these different uh, ocean swims. In 1952, uh, she set out to uh, do a swim uh, back towards her home in California. Uh, she set out to swim uh, 26 miles from Catalina Island to the California coast. She um, was flanked by boats on each side that were spotting for sharks to make sure uh, sharks left her alone. Um, Around 15 hours into her swim, uh, this heavy, thick fog set in, uh, and she had no way of knowing how far she was from the coast. And when that happened, um, and as she realized that this fog was going nowhere, she really started to doubt her abilities. Even though she'd done all these incredible swims in the ocean, she wasn't sure if, if she would be able to do this. And she told her mother, who was in one of the boats, that she really didn't think that she could make it. But she pressed on for uh, another hour, uh, trying to make it to the coast. And, and finally, she called the boat over and, and asked them to pull her in. She gave up. And it turned out that she was just one mile away from the coastline, right? She'd gone 25 miles. Yeah, but because of this fog, she couldn't tell. She wasn't sure how far away she was and, and ended up just one mile from the coastline. And uh, life certainly can feel like that sometimes. Uh, this year maybe has felt like that for you, like you are swimming and swimming in this rough water. It feels like you've been swimming forever. There's this thick fog and there's no, no way to tell how much further you have to go. I wonder if you've been reading through Isaiah with us, I wonder if Isaiah has even felt that way for you, like this heavy fog that set in for uh, Florence Chadwick. Um, today, we, we get through uh, just the 12th chapter and already we've read so much uh, about this judgment uh, on God's people, this destruction, this devastation uh, because of Israel's refusal to turn to God, to trust in him. And it leads to just oracle after oracle of looming judgment. But we get these, these, these little pictures of hope, these descriptions of hope, the hope of God saving a remnant of his people Right, that this judgment that we're reading about will lead to restoration of his people. Even though God's hand has been turned against his people, it will not be that way forever. God will send 
the Messiah. We just read last week, beginning of chapter nine, that the child would be born and that he would be unlike any leader the world had ever seen, that he would be the one on the throne of David forever. And it's like this quick break in the fog where for a moment God gives his people through the prophet this real hope that they can grab onto, right? This image to hold onto even when everything around them seems hopeless. It just seems God forsaken and how crucial it is for God's people that we have these images of his promise just burned into our minds as we live in a place that is not our home. In chapter 9, beginning in 8, we see that that God has sent uh, a word against Israel. Israel at this point, they are filled with pride. They are not looking to God. They're trusting in what they can do. So they they have this posture of of arrogance and pride. Verse 10, it gives us a window into that. It says, the bricks have fallen and, and, and they say, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place, right? They were capable people. Uh, they thought, hey, our, our walls have been knocked down. We'll, we'll build with these stones. Right? Our, our, our big trees have been chopped down. We'll plant new ones. Being capable uh, can be a, an asset. Being confident can be good. But is your, confident, is your confidence rightly placed? Right? Are you confident in yourself or does your confidence actually lay in God? Well, God responds to their arrogance by raising up an adversary like Andrew mentioned, Assyria, right? That they they would be God's tool to judge Israel for their rebellion. The Assyrians would be used by God in order to judge Israel. The second part of verse 12, it says, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And then verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord. Even though God sent his adversary to judge Israel, the people didn't turn to God. They didn't even think of coming to God for help. And I'm sure if you're like me in following Jesus, we have these aha moments where we realize we've been going through life without even coming to the Lord, not asking him for wisdom, not consulting him, we go through life and maybe it's a difficult season or it can even be a good one, but suddenly it hits you. Man, I haven't, I haven't sought the Lord in any of this. I'm not trusting in him. I'm trusting in myself because sometimes we're just so focused on what's right in front of us. Right? We're so focused by the world that we forget about the sovereign one, the one who is in control of everything. I remember uh, the first time Linz and I bought a house, I tell you, we were praying like crazy as we were getting ready to sign for this loan, um, buying this $100,000 house. It felt like so much back then, and now houses are crazy. Sorry if you were born away after me. Um, the second time we bought a house, I'm guessing we prayed a little bit less. I don't really remember, uh, but we'd been through it before, right? It wasn't as scary. We, we kind of knew what the process was like. And then I became a realtor and I was buying and selling houses or helping clients buy and sell houses all the time. And I just got used to it. And then you fast forward to the house we're in now. We bought it 10, 11 years ago. 
and, and we got under contract to buy this house. We're in the whole process. And then at some point, a week or two later, it, it just hit me like, God, I don't even know if I've actually talked to you about this. I don't know if I've actually sought you in us moving our family. It, it was just like a mile away, but in moving to this new neighborhood, I haven't asked you anything about this. It's so easy for us to get comfortable, to get puffed up with pride and think, I know what I'm doing and we just miss God. If we aren't careful, if we aren't intentional, we lose this dependent posture before the Lord. And it can happen the other way too, right? When, when life isn't good, when life is really hard and maybe, maybe life's not going well because of sinful decisions you've made or maybe life is just hard for no reason that you can see at that point. And you have that moment where you realize, Lord, why have I not turned to you? Why have I had no regard for you? Well, praise God for those moments when we recognize that, when we have that clarity. And sometimes it's a gentle nudge. Sometimes it feels like he just slaps you right upside the head to get your attention. And maybe I'm going through the motions. Maybe I'm not really trusting in God. Well, Israel had refused to turn to God. And that was the goal of the judgment. Turn to God, trust in him. So again, I ask, in what do you trust? Throughout the rest of chapter nine and into the beginning of 10, these oracles of judgment are just piled one on top of another. And, and, and then 10, five through 34 shifts onto Assyria. In 10, five, we read that this judgment is coming on Assyria because of its pride. And we'll see this pattern in Isaiah, right? That, that, that God will bring a nation to judge Israel. That nation will get filled up with pride because of the success that they're having and conquering. And God will bring another nation to judge them. And the same thing will happen. God will bring another nation. And what's, what's clear is that God is the one that's in control. In 1012, it says, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, this is what the king says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures and then he compares himself to, to this strong beast. He says, like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. And, and then later, a few verses later, we get these uh, rhetorical questions and statements. Right? God says to the Assyrian king, does, does the ax boast over the one who swings it? Does the rod wield the one who lifts it? Do, does the staff lift the one made of wood? And it is so easy to think that, that the things we're good at, the skills that we have, that they're because of us, that we did it when really God has given us everything that we have. Verse 20, it says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return 
Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. God again reminds that he will save a remnant. Some will turn to God and trust in him. Assyria would come and they would be God's means of judgment on Israel, but they would not be able to destroy Jerusalem. Later in chapter 10, Isaiah lists off just city after city that that Assyria is rolling through, bringing their judgment, just devastation after devastation. But then they get to Jerusalem and he says all that they can do is, is shake their fist, right? That's it. They're, they're limited. Why? Because God has decreed it. They can't go further than what God has planned. He's over all these things. And we, we have to remember as, as we're reading this book that, that there are these real historical events recorded, right? These things happened. And then the prophet and God is using them to help the future readers of this book, right? Yes, these things happened in history. And God has been using this message in the book of Isaiah to shape people, his people for generations. So when we read all of this, we ought to see things like, man, how prone we are to wander from God and to trust in ourselves or in other created things. We ought to see that rebellion leads to destruction, we ought to ask ourselves, do I really trust in the Lord, right? Or or am I just coming to church every week? Am I just playing the part? Is my life truly about Jesus, my Savior? We ought to see that our only hope is in Jesus, and that hope that we have, if it's placed in Christ, it is sure. And if we see and understand those things, we're a people just brimming with joy, a joy that makes no sense to the unbelieving world. If you've been reading along with us in Isaiah, you've probably picked up on this uh, deforestation motif that runs throughout, right? And, and first, it's Israel, right? They're compared to these mighty trees that, that are chopped down one after another. And then in chapter 10, the ax is turned onto Assyria. So they, uh, just like Israel, were reduced to briars and thorns. And that's how chapter 10 ends, verses, verses 33 and 34. It says, Behold, The Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And then we move into 11, and it's organized around the theme of the restoration of Israel and begins with this royal oracle. And and really, chapters 11 and 12, they transcend the time of these events. So 11, we find ourselves staring at a stump. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And this stump of Jesse, and you remember Jesse was King David's father. This stump is the Davidic kingdom, right? So once, uh, once the Davidic kingdom was like a tall and magnificent tree, and it's been chopped down, right? Like the image we saw in the video, it's been burned. It's, it's a miserable reminder of the failure of the kings in the Davidic line, that king after king after king, they're filled with pride and they rejected God. They trusted in their own ways and eventually God chopped the tree down. But Isaiah again gives us hope, right? That out of this dead, burnt stump is this little shoot and this branch will bear fruit. 
And maybe you connect that back to 613 when it says the, the, the holy seed, right? It's the stump. God is going to provide the Savior. So now we read in verse 5 about the Savior. And I want you to notice the quality, the description of the quality of this king. Um, or sorry, in verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And, and if you remember the descriptions that we've read so far of Israel's leaders, this is the complete opposite. Verse 4, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And then what follows are these images of, of predator and prey hanging out together, the wolf and the lamb, the, the cow and the lion. And there's, there's an image of, of this like, toddler playing uh, right over the snake's den. It's this picture of, of total peace over, over the earth because it's full of the knowledge of the Lord. And then 11.10, it says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people's, of him the nations shall inquire. It reminds us of chapter 2. And his resting place shall be glorious, right? And we keep reading in that day or on that day or the day of the Lord, right? And what I want you to remember is there's, there's two sides to this coin. We've read a lot about the judgment on the day of the Lord, but the other side it right, connected is, is peace, it's restoration, it's healing, it's, it's a recovering of God's people. Weeks ago, uh, we, we read that God would raise a signal, and the signal was for the adversary to come and bring judgment against Israel. But now we, raise, or we read that the Messiah raises a signal to call his people home to him. Verse 11, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. In that day, God extends his hand to recover his remnant, right? So far, we've read about God extending his hand against Israel in judgment for their sin, but now his hand is out to gather his people, to recover his people, no matter how far away their exile has taken them. When you read in Scripture about God's hand, you need to think power Right? It's, a, it's a picture, it signifies the power that God's, God has. And we've read about his power in judgment. Now we read about his power to recover, his power to save, his power to restore. And then in 1115, uh, we get a reminder. It's a flashback to Egypt and the Exodus as God parted the sea for his people that, so that they could walk on dry ground. And it's a promise that he will save again. Verse 15 and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike into seven channels. He will lead the people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So this isn't only a reminder of what God did, but it's a picture of this new exodus. As God was faithful 
and mighty to save his people from slavery to the Egyptians, so God will once again save his people. Uh, those of us who are reading Packer's book, Knowing God, just a couple weeks ago, we were reminded that the God that we read about in the Old Testament, the God that we read about in the New Testament is the same mighty God that we serve today. And we need that reminder that he who parted the Red Sea is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As the Egyptian chariots were breathing down the necks of the Israelites, the only real choice for God's people was to turn to him, to trust in him, to follow wherever he led them. And I, I don't know if we really recognize the significance of the Exodus story. It, it's the major saving work uh, of, of God's people that, that God points to through the Old Testament, reminds us over and over again his salvation from slavery. It, it might be the most significant saving work until Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this picture, uh, and this is the picture that he's giving us here. Right? He's saying, remember who this God is and how he saves. Recall his power. He will save those who turn to him. He will part the waters. You will walk on dry ground. Like it says in verse 16, it's going to be like a highway for God's people from Assyria. And this image should strengthen the believer. While everything around you points to hopelessness, trust in the Lord, that he's mighty to save, that he will save everyone who puts their trust in him. Uh, There's a verse last week uh, that, uh, in Matt's sermon 7-9, it said, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Man, church, be firm in faith. Put your trust in the Lord, not in, not in whatever other thing you could trust in. The words of chapter 11, it gives us this moment of, of God, uh, this image of, of his salvation, this proclamation that the way, the way that God saved through the exodus, he's saying, I am going to bring a new exodus. I'm going to call my people from all over the world to me. Those who trust in God will be saved by his mighty hand. And just like after Israel crossed through the Red Sea, Moses sang this song in Exodus 15, a song of salvation, celebrating God's might, his saving work. And we see that in the next chapter of Isaiah, chapter 12. It says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Verse three, with joy you will draw, uh, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. God is my salvation. I will trust for the Lord is my strength and my song. Again, in what do you trust or in whom do you trust? What is your strength? And so far throughout Isaiah, and really we see this in all the prophets, this question keeps coming up over and over again. Will you trust in the Lord? Will you trust in the Lord? Or are you gonna be like the nations? Are you gonna trust in other things, in these fake gods or in yourself? There's a picture uh, of what, what happens when, when you trust like the other nations do. Like, are you going to trust in, in, these, in these things? Are you going to pridefully trust that, that you can get yourself where you need to? 
All of these things end in devastation. They, they put you in a wasteland. They give you nothing that they have promised. So what do we put in our trust in now? And it could be any number of things. There's probably unlimited options. We can put our trust in wealth, right? It can be in uh, an investment portfolio uh, or in the wild ride that crypto is uh, or living mortgage-free uh, or the career that you've built or, or this business that you built from scratch or Americans, we're obsessed with our health, right? It is an idol. We, we obsess over taking care of our bodies, how we feel, right? How far we can run or ride or how many, how many sets we can crank out or maybe we're putting our trust in, in a treatment plan or, or medication or, or a diagnosis. Uh, we certainly can put our trust in, in government. And you know this is true if you're devastated by someone that's elected into office. And I'm not saying politics doesn't matter, uh, just like money matters, like we need it to function. But do we overly put our hope in, in the government? Or maybe you put your hope you trust in relationships, whether it's a friendship uh, or, or a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or, um, uh, or your parents, your kids, or it could be any number of relationships. Or maybe, maybe none of those are what you put your trust in. Maybe, uh, maybe you don't struggle trusting uh, the government or, or doctors or, or whatever relationship. What you trust in is you. Right? You are your strength. You figured out pretty early on that you really can't trust anyone. If it's going to happen, it's going to be because you make it happen. Or maybe all of those have failed you. And, and what you trust in is being able to escape everything. Right? You, you've found ways to at least temporarily numb all of the stress and disappointments in life. And there are any number of ways available to us today whether it's substances or fantasies or, or just keeping yourself constantly busy. Like maybe that's why you work all the time or, or, or you're just obsessed with this, this one thing in life you call your, your passion, even though it's meaningless. And we can come up with hundreds of areas, hundreds of ways that we put our trust in, in created things or, or to draw strength from. And Isaiah tells us every single one will fail us. Every single one will lead to destruction, at least in the end. Not a single one will fulfill the promise that it makes because all of them are rebellion against God and lead to destruction. And praise God that all these things lead to dead ends. Right? It's God's grace that he shows us that none of these work out for us. Right? He might let us be fooled for a time. We can temporarily feel satisfaction in, in all of these different ways, but it wanes. Right? The good feeling that you once had, it fades. And, and you might chase it, but it's never as good as you remember. And I'm telling you, that's God's grace. He shows us that the road of not trusting in God goes absolutely nowhere. The day of the Lord isn't just a day of judgment. It's a day of hope and restoration. And through Isaiah, while we see pictures of destruction, right, and the, like the deforestation motif I mentioned, uh, we've read that throughout these chapters. And it's depressing to look around and, and see landscape of, of just all these once magnificent trees reduced to stumps. But Isaiah 
also gives us glimpses of hope, as we've seen in, in chapter 2 and 9 and 11 and 12. We'll continue to see through the book, right? Even though everywhere we look, it, it, it just seems like stump after stump after burnt stump. But Isaiah tells us there's, there's this one stump, and you might miss it, but it's got this tiny little shoot coming out, this little branch, and this is God's doing. God is the one who told Israel that he would send his Messiah, who would come from the promised line of David, that this branch would bring peace. And, and it's peace that is so great that it, it sounds, it reads like a fairy tale. Right? We cannot imagine peace like this if God hadn't said it in his word. And we know that Isaiah's words about the Messiah are true because Jesus has come. He was born of the virgin. He lived the sinless life that we all fall short of. He died the death that we deserve. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's given his people the Holy Spirit. We know that he will return as he has promised that he's working right now to save some from every nation. Right, like the picture in chapter two, that the nations will flood to God. That one day this remnant will finally be saved. And then and it tells us how we're gonna sing to the Lord. We'll start in verse four, actually. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. And I love this. It says, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We're gonna shout we're going to sing. Actually, we're going to shout sing, right? And, and you, know, you know what that's like when nobody's in the house and your favorite song turns on or you're driving in your car and that song turns on and you crank it up or even better, you're at a concert with a few thousand of your best buddies and, and you are singing whatever that band is playing at the top of your lungs and the tone doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if you're a little pitchy what matters is the volume, and you blare it out. You're belting it out. And that's what someday we'll get to do with all of the redeemed. We'll shout sing, for the Holy One of Israel will be in our midst. Can you imagine that? Right, that all the pain of this world will be a distant memory, but not even just the pain. All the things that right now we think are pretty great, those will pale in comparison to the greatness of our Savior. So we'll belt out his praises at the top of our lungs, and we won't want to stop. But we shouldn't wait until then to be joyful. God's people should be a people marked with joy right now. Is that you? And if not, right, if people wouldn't even describe you as a joyful person, why is that? What's going on? Is it possible that the good news has lost some of its shine for you, that, that, that you're so used to it that it's not really that good anymore? Or, or are you distracted right, by the things that you're pursuing in life or, or the problems of this world? Have we lost our hope 
because our hope isn't truly in the Lord, because we don't truly trust in him and in him alone. And, and we need pictures like this picture of the new exodus in, in 11.15 and, and, and others in Isaiah and throughout the Bible, because sometimes life is so discouraging. Right? We get worn out. And I wonder how many of us in the room right now are, are right there or people online. Right? Are you just way past the point of, of tears and, and maybe on the verge of throwing in the towel. Maybe you stopped praying months ago, maybe years ago, because you just can't see what in the world God is up to. Why would he do this? Right? Why would he let me go through this? Maybe you wonder if he even cares, and it, it, it gets to be like this thick, heavy fog right? that, that sets in. And, and you keep trying, but like, like Florence Chadwick that I talked about, your strength is, is just sapped. You, you can't see anything in front of you. Well, two months after, uh, after that swim that Florence gave up on, you remember she swam 25 of the 26 miles when, when she gave up. Two months later, she tried again. And, and just like the previous time, that fog settled in. And she knew what that fog was going to be like. But this time... She made it, even though she couldn't see the coastline with her eyes. She said she had a mental image of the coastline as she swam. And Isaiah gives us these mental images here. And really, they're, they're all throughout Scripture. Right? We know what God has purposed. Right? There's tons that we do not know, obviously. But, but we know who our God is. We know his, his plan. We know that he will save those who trust in him. God has given us very descriptive images that we are to set our hope on. Will you trust in the Lord? Let's pray. Jesus, we confess how easy it is uh, for our eyes uh, to no longer be on you. Lord, we, we recognize that, that we're just so distractible. Lord, and that, that we're so quick to run to these things that, that we can touch, that we can see, and, and we latch onto those, we anchor to those as if those are going to provide for us. God, forgive us of that. Lord, thank you for your gracious reminders over and over again, whether it's a gentle nudge or a slap on the head, reminding us, pointing out to us that, that we're not even looking at you. We're not even looking to you to be our Lord, our Savior, our King. God, help us, Lord. We don't want to live that way. We want to be a people that, that, that have just burned into our memories the, the reality of who you are, that, that Jesus has already come, that he will return, that you, you are saving your people. You are gathering your people, Lord, and one day we will be with you forever. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.